Hello, this is Candace Stewart. I'm the Director of Communications for Chime. I have with me today, John Coyle. John Coyle is one of our keynote speakers for Chime 20 um, Digital Recharge. And so um, John is a very interesting man. He's an Olympian, design thinking expert, and many other things, including, I think, an aficionado of really, really, really hot peppers. So um, we're going we're gonna to talk with John about a couple things that he's been working on. So, you know, John, to begin with, um, I thought perhaps we could talk a little bit about design thinking and what that is. Sure. So design thinking is a method of creative problem solving out of Stanford. <clears throat> it's become quite popular really in the last five years, even though it's been around since the early 90s. Uh, the father of design thinking is a guy named David Kelly, who's notable for a couple of reasons. He is the head of Stanford's D School or design school. He's the head of, of IDEO, which is the innovation consulting firm. But maybe most notable is he was Steve Jobs, right-hand man and uh, key designer for about 15 years and very close friends with him. And I was fortunate enough to have David Kelly as my academic advisor. But design thinking in a nutshell is really a mindset and process for finding new ways to solve old problems. And it anchors very heavily to something often missing in all kinds of problem solving, uh, be it uh, real world business or even politics, which is empathy. Do you understand the problem, situation, challenge you're solving from the shoes or the perspective of the person or thing you're solving for? Yeah, so it, it really is a discipline in some ways. Is that correct? It really is because it, it, it does actually take practice and, and discipline to, to form the discipline. Uh, one of the things that's notable for really great design thinkers is that they are simultaneously analytically detached from any given solution. So they're sort of solution agnostic. But they're also very, very uh, emotionally attached to finding a solution. And those two things tend to not go hand in hand. Usually people get anchored to a solution emotionally and then pursue it um, with all their vigor. Um, and they often miss uh, identify the real problem they're trying to solve. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, that actually can be a bias in science as well. Oh, for sure. It happens all the time, all parts of life, actually. Right. And so you have talked about in the past how you use design thinking um, really to help you as an athlete. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. So I was, I was at Stanford and studying with David Kelly. And while studying full-time in California with no coach and no training program, I managed to still get 12th in the world in the sport of speed skating my senior year. And so by graduating and joining the Olympic team full-time, I thought that I could go from 12th to 6th to 1st by the time the two years I had to prepare for the next Olympics. Unfortunately, the Olympic team put me on a program that really didn't suit me. It was really focused on fixing my weaknesses, which are many and varied. And uh, that did not work out for me. I went from 12th to 34th to not even making the team two years later. And at this point, I was ready to quit. But this is where sort of design thinking kicks in. And by the way, when you're ready to quit something, you sometimes get this little magic window of something called perspective. Mm -hmm. And when you're willing to quit, but you haven't, that's really that design thinking analytical detachment moment. I backed up and I'm like, should I quit? You know, I used to be good. Something's wrong here. Maybe I'm solving the wrong problem. Maybe instead of trying to fix my weaknesses, maybe I need a design for my specific strengths. And so I did quit the team, not the sport, and I began to train on my own again. And this time I changed my technique to double down on what I do well. I 
I'm not an aerobic athlete, but I'm an anaerobic athlete. And so I, I started skating a track that was fundamentally different than anybody in the world at that time. And I did this for an entire year without racing until the next trials for the world championships, which is the same as the Olympic tri trials in a non-Olympic year. And one year to the day of getting 30th at the U.S. trials, finishing way off the pack, my first race back, I broke the U.S. record by five and a half seconds and the world record by over a second and went on to set every U.S. record back to back and go on to the world championships and set the 500 meter world record there as well. Right. So, you know, the concept is that you're designing, you're designing around your weaknesses, right? That's um, exactly right. Knowing what your strengths are. Exactly right. And isn't, we're not talking skill gaps here, right? It's not like a new operating system on your phone. You, you learn it and you move on. We're talking about real weaknesses, things that are sort of uh, innate into who you are. And by the way, you know, strengths, strengths come at the cost of weakness most often. So almost every strength has like a, a, uh, a dark side and vice versa. Most weaknesses mm -hmm. have a silver lining. So if you're creative, you're probably disorganized. If you're practical, you're probably critical. If you're detail oriented, you're probably a perfectionist. If you're a big picture strategist, you're probably terrible with details. If you're calm, you're probably unemotional. I could go on and on, but you get the point that we need to design our way into our strengths, into environments that value those strengths as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can have a great set of strengths that aren't valued in your environment, and that doesn't really bode well for your future. So I'm curious because you used this um, discipline and this mindset um, previously. We are now in a situation where people are challenged in ways that they hadn't been before. Um, you would, you and all of us have been, you know, your career as somebody who was a, a public speaker um, was definitely affected by this. So did you apply, again, what you know from design thinking in the past nine months or so, or how it feels like it's nine years, right? Right, um, sure does. <laughs> to, yeah, I really, to, I really did. You know, every time I get myself into a situation where it feels like it's impossible, like COVID just felt impossible, right? Like I travel the world and speak to large groups of, pe groups of people elbow to elbow in closed spaces like that ended, And I was like, you know, it's over. But then I got to thinking and I'm like, you know, every time I get to a, a place where I feel like there's no options, that's when you have to like fold back the, the next page and say, wait, there's always an option in the infinite possibilities of the world. It must be something. And that's where this idea to sell everything I own and move into an RV and travel around the country, taking uh, my information with me to speak to outdoor groups occasionally and virtual, which I can do anywhere, uh, even here on a hilltop by the Green River here in Utah. And in so doing, I've also really opened myself up to lots of new insights and possibilities from being on the road and seeing the world from a different lens. So there's always a way. Right. So when you see the wall, what you need to do is back up and go around it, correct? You got it. You got it. Yeah. Um, every once in a while, my dog doesn't quite get that. <laughs> Just walks up to the wall. Um, and so, you know, I'm wondering if, um, you know, when you think about our members and the situation they're in, you know, they're facing a lot of walls right now, too. Yeah. And, yep. you know, there's so many. There's everything going on in healthcare. There's the unknown trajectory of COVID. Um, all the hospitals are being being financially pretty strained right now. Their staffs, yep. are, staffs are just maxed out. So when you're facing many walls, how do you choose which wall you should start with? 
You know, I, for me, it's always uh, sort of the intersection of if you have a hunch, um, usually your instincts are right, 80% of the time at least. And so then evaluate it, you know, detached analytically as to whether this might be the right path forward. You can't always just use your gut, but it's usually a great place to start because you're your back brain is always stewing on all the facts and data and implications coming into your brain. And, and it usually has a good uh, sort of directional bent to where you can go. The other thing that I just really struck me, I was doing a, an eight hour virtual lecture for a college, Marquette University. And, and I was, you know, a part of me was a bit nervous because of the long, it's a long day, right? It's a long day, even in person. And, and virtually I was worried that people would be detached, but you know, here's the thing, you know, you think that would be the case, but what we heard later is, Hey, usually when I'm in a lecture like this and this capstone class, all I see is the backs of my fellow students heads. And today I had them like on the, you know, a wall of windows and I could see everybody's expressions, see when they laugh, see when they smiled and through chat sort of stay in touch like passing notes um, all the while focused on the information at hand so actually it was more engaged than last year when I did it in person and you wouldn't expect that yeah well you know that's that kind of takes me to some of the things that I've been reading so um, John has has several books um, but he also has a blog a website with his name that has a blog and you're, you're very pr prolific on that blog um, and I had been reading one, um, the Build Resil Re Resiliency During COVID. Yes. And that's, that's a very interesting one. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you came about, the con what the concepts are and how you came about them? Yeah, you know, it's the metaphor, you know, given my background, does come from sport. But sports is really good because it's so simple and it really does provide some really good metaphors. And, you know, we as athletes, we we develop, we grow our resiliency, right? We, you do squats in order to build your muscles so you can lift more weight. You do curls so you can do, you know, more arm weights. And, and so you build a physical resiliency through training and rest and recovery. Um, as it turns out, this same sort of set of tools is perfectly applicable to psychological stress. And we are faced with a potentially chronic stress right now in the form of COVID. It's just there, right? It's there all the time. It hasn't gone away. It's in the news all the time. And if you let yourself, you're going to get into this situation, which would be sort of the equivalent of an athlete doing lunges or curls 15 hours a day. No athlete does that. Why? Because your muscles atrophy if they don't get any recovery. And so, you know, the, the metaphor following through is we need to not be in a constant state of chronic stress. So turn off the TV, turn off the news. Uh, nothing's going to change in the overnight that's significant enough that you need to know 24-7 what's going on. Uh, take breaks. Uh, get some uh, physical activity back into your life. It's, it's really easy to get stuck in your chair um, listening to the news and doing work. But we metabolize stress through movement. And then the last thing that uh, I'll say, and, and I'll be sharing this when we're meeting all virtually, but the other thing that athletes do with physical stress is they gamify it, right? Sports are games. And mm -hmm. the reality is that all of life is a game of chance, right? Nothing is for certain. 
it's not like uh, bleach and baking soda. It's not like a chemical reaction where one plus one always equals two. We don't know the outcomes of the things that are going to happen in our life, of this next meeting, of this interview, of, of talking with this person or giving feedback or meeting the boss. Or We don't know. We can't possibly know the outcomes of any given human interaction because humans are so complicated. And so when you can put stats, just like athletes do, when you put sort of stats or numbers to an outcome, and then the other thing that athletes do is when they win, they celebrate. When they lose, they learn from it. So, you know, you go into a meeting for the boss and you say, hey, I got an 80% chance of this going well. Hmm, there's a 20% chance it might not. Why is that? Try to increase my odds to 90-10. But if you do get the 10%, we say, well, that could happen. And what went wrong? Or if you get the, you know, the positive outcome, then you say, hey, hooray, that was a really great meeting. Let's try to do it again even better next time. And so this is what athletes do. They gamify their stress, their physical stress. We can do the same with psychological stress. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to give away um, a lot of this blog. I really recommend that people go and, and read um, what John has been writing. But, you know, the, the Sisyphus thing was, was really <laughs> interesting and fun. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so, I mean, Sisyphus was cursed by the gods for some slight that he did to have to roll a boulder up a mountain and back down for all of eternity. And this is the worst thing that the gods could come up with. And I think to myself, well, you know, I spent 20 years going to cold countries in winter to go to the artificially refrigerated environments and the most uncomfortable position known to man in incredible pain. And somehow that was fun. And the difference is it's a game. So if Sisyphus had made boulder rolling a game, which is, by the way, not entirely different than bowling, right? You're rolling a large boulder down a wooden aisle 30 times, but you're keeping track, you have stats, you're keeping score, you celebrate when you win. Um, if he had been the best boulder roller in the universe and set up a course, suddenly that wouldn't have been a curse. And, and that's really the same with all sorts of life stresses. If you can figure out a way to make it into some sort of game that you have hopefully good odds at winning, then it changes, it actually changes your, your uh, brain chemistry. So when you mm -hmm. view stress as a threat, you emit cortisol, which is useful if somebody's coming at you with an ax, uh, but it causes you to fight fight flight or fight flee or hide right that's not particularly useful when your boss has a side word for you in a meeting scratching their eyes out and then running hiding under your cubicle not as useful <laughs> uh, and so but when you gamify and you say hey boss is coming in i don't know if it's going to be a good or bad conversation i got 50 50 odds you emit um uh, DHEA and oxytocin and DHEA causes you to broaden your perspective and look for other possibilities and oxytocin causes you to ask for help the hug hormone so which is better to ask others for help and broaden your perspective or to get ready to fight somebody and then run away and hide I suspect the first is much much more productive in our lives today well you know one other thing I want to point out though is if Sisyphus gets to make this into a bowling game he gets to wear the bowling shoes that's right. And he gets to choose the outfit and he wears the uniform and he wins a medal. Right. You know, the other thing um, in your blogs and also in, in your presentations, um, you often cite books and you clearly are, are reading a lot and you're taking in a lot of other people's ideas. Also, you're crediting them, um, which I greatly appreciate. Um, so what are you reading right now? You know, I am rereading for me the most influential book of my lifetime, bar none, times five. So it's called Behave by Robert Sapolsky. Uh, 
mm-hmm. out of Stanford. He is a PhD in both neuroscience and endocrinology, which is the study of hormones. And in this book, he really boils basically all human behaviors down to the neuroscience and biology that we all carry with us. And I mean, I am just far less confused about people's attitudes, behaviors, and actions uh, subsequent to reading this book. Like most of what we do actually makes sense once you understand the underlying biology and neuroscience. It's, it's a fantastic read. Well, that sounds great. I actually, I'm going to look that up. Um, I did want to point out one other thing. One of your presentations um, that I saw on YouTube you um, actually cited Marcus Buckingham, who's going to be one yes. of our other keynote speakers. Oh, fantastic. God, I'm, I wish it was in person. I've been wanting to eat him for, for forever. I mean, when I read Now Discover Your Strengths, it really gave language to all the things that I'd been thinking and having sort of intuitions about and, and really put language to what I did with you know my sport of speed skating and subsequently in my career, which I just kept everything, time I hit a brick wall, it would, turn to the left or right and try to figure out where my specific strengths were and then double down on those. And that has served me incredibly well every time I've done it. Wow, cool. Um, So we're getting close to our time. I just wanted to make sure, is there anything that you wanted to add? Well, you know, one thing that probably we won't have time to talk about when we're all together, but one thing that's real, I think really is very interesting right now is, and it's my next book is what's going on in terms of our perception of time, particularly under COVID. So I don't know if you're like me, but it seemed like the start of COVID was forever ago, like you said, nine years. Um, And, but subsequent to that beginning, it feels like time has been flying by. I just, June, I don't really remember. And this is the the metaphor here that I'm still working on a little bit, but it's called the dolly zoom effect or the vertigo effect in filmmaking. It's when they simultaneously race the camera backwards while zooming in. Mm -hmm. And so the object in focus in this case would be, for example, the start of COVID stays the same size, but everything else around it uh, shrinks in comparison as you zoom back. And so what I think is happening is because we're stuck in such routine, we're not putting those memory markers in place that sort of sort of uh, dictate our sense of time. And time has sped up since COVID, even though COVID itself seems like it's forever ago. Oh, that's interesting. I look forward to seeing that. Um, so thank you for taking time and talking with us. And I hope we get to talk again. Oh, my pleasure. Great to chat with you again, Candace. Thanks.